Welcome to California Women Lawyers Seat at the Table. I'm your host, Summer C. Selleck, with my co-host, Ariel Brownell-Lee. We are joined today by our guest, Judge Tara Flanagan. Judge Tara Flanagan serves as a judge of the Superior Court of California in the County of Alameda. Judge Flanagan earned a Bachelor's of Science degree from California State University, Northridge, and earned her law degree from Southwestern Law School in 1998. Before going to law school, Judge Flanagan lived in England pursuing her rugby career. She was selected to the U.S. Women's Rugby National Team. She and her teammates went on to win the Women's Rugby World Cup in 1991. The USA Eagles followed their impressive 1991 victory with a second-place finish in the 1994 World Cup. Judge Flanagan is a member of the United States Rugby Hall of Fame. As her rugby career came to a close, Judge Flanagan enrolled in law school. She distinguished herself at Southwestern, becoming class president, and was named to the Moot Court Honors Program, where she later served on the Honors Board of Directors. After graduation, Judge Flanagan's law career started at a litigation firm in Orange County. From there, she joined the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office, where she served as Deputy District Attorney. During her first year at the DA's office, her hard work and skill earned her recognition and honors as an outstanding domestic violence prosecutor. In 2004, Judge Flanagan began practicing family law. As a legal aid attorney, she represented domestic violence survivors and their children. Later, Judge Flanagan was the managing attorney of the Self-Help Center of the Superior Court and Family Law Facilitator. She later opened her own practice and continued to protect victims of domestic violence. In 2012, Judge Flanagan won election for a seat on the Alameda County Court. Her seat was challenged in 2018 and she won that election as well. Since joining the bench, she continues to be an active voice in our community, serving on various boards and volunteering her time. Judge Flanagan has a strong sense of fair play in team building and is an asset to the Alameda County bench. Welcome to a seat at the table, Judge Flanagan. So just to start off, so how did, how did you become a lawyer? How did you, how did you decide to go into law? We know a little bit about your, your background. Ariel uh, did some I, research on you. I was looking up your bio, very impressed to learn about your rugby background. I did not know that. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, super cool. It's scary, but super cool. <laughs> yeah, completely unrelated in so many ways to what I'm doing now, but also eerily relevant at times. Yeah. <laughs> Rugby. I can imagine. Right, right. Especially doing family law. That's absolutely right, oh, it's a, which is a scrum in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> so how did I get involved in law? Well, yeah. so there were no lawyers in my family, and actually not my mom grew up in a small Ukrainian uh, immigrant farming community in Canada okay. in the Alberta uh, prairies and she went to a one-room schoolhouse so there weren't even a lot of people in my family that had gone to college so um, it wasn't that I had some lawyers in the family or, or whatnot to aspire to or follow but I always really enjoyed academics when I was a young person and in school I did well and I liked to I won't say argue, but I liked to debate, or I, I wasn't in official debate team in high school or anything like that, but I, I always like to argue or try to take the counterpoint to something. I'm one of seven kids raised by a single mom, so it's fair to say there were a lot of lively discussions uh, <laughs> yeah. slash arguments, so it was a good training ground. Uh, but when I really started to get the idea of law, actually, was by chance when I was 13, and my family had moved to a small town in southern Oregon. Um, out of the Bay Area. We moved up there for a few years, and I had a paper route. 
I had a job, you know, he had to earn money, one of seven single kids with a single mom. Yeah. And by paper route, the town was so small, it included some county and state offices, including the circuit courthouse for that part of Southern Oregon in a little town called Grants Pass. So I would deliver the paper to different county offices, and one place I delivered the paper was to the courthouse, to the judge, to the judge's chambers. So I got to go through the back, just like we're in the back hallways in the inner sanctum of the uh, 1221 Oak Street. There's a way uh, in that little town to get through the back, and that's where I got to go each Monday through Friday and deliver the newspaper to the judge. And by that time, it would be after school. The judge would be done with a court day, and I got to know the judge a little bit, and he would invite me into the chambers, and I would look around and see all the law books, and he was a very scholarly type of person, and he would tell me as I got to know him more about what happened in court that day or what was going on, and to me, it was fascinating. Yeah. And so I had been interested generally in the idea of law, but when I saw this judge's chambers and the leather chair and the books and the mahogany desk, I thought, oh, this is the best seat in the house <laughs> this fellow has. And it, it just got me thinking that maybe I could be a judge someday. Cool. That's really cool. That would have been a great experience for a young child to have. Yeah. It I sure was. I still get wrapped up in the, the judge's robe. I'm like, what secrets do you hold? <laughs> <laughs> so, There's a mystique for there, sure, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I got to try one on once, and I was just like, this is the greatest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so 13, that's pretty pretty young to know that you wanted to be a lawyer. Well, actually, looks like at 13 you wanted to, you knew you wanted to be a judge. I hoped, and I, you know, that was just the idea. Um, but, yeah, I, I sort of had an idea. I didn't know how I was going to get there. But it was just an idea, and then I would see different TV shows and things like that with lawyers on it, and I, I thought that was really cool, yeah. and you know, I saw, obviously, To Kill a Mockingbird, and um, just became interested in law in general, but also, you know, in the sense of justice, and as a young child, I'd had family, member, family members who had gone through either some bad divorces or had criminal law experience and had been victims of crime and so my sense of justice from a young age also was developing because of those um, family of origin types of situations that I was observing or hearing about and so that also uh, and also one of one of seven kids you know there's uh, what's fair is really important <laughs> when there's so many siblings what what is fair equal division of labor equal division of resource and wealth and commodities mm -hmm. and so being number six or seven, uh, my sense of justice might be a little different than kid number one. <laughs> yeah. But Holding that, people's court at your house exactly. <laughs> trying to figure out who gets exactly. lost. Exactly. So that's where some of those uh, ideas really started to, to gel. So when you first started thinking about a career in the law, you know, from your young age and as you got older, did it ever enter into the equation that there weren't as many women in the law? and that there could be a, a hurdle to overcome uh, with your identity, anything like that? It sure did. I didn't know, even probably until I started working before law school, I, I got a paralegal certificate. Um, I was just sort of dipping my toe in the pool of law. I had a friend who was a paralegal, uh, and she said, you know, you should do this. You'd be good at this. And so I did eventually apply and go to UCLA paralegal program at night while working full time. And at that point, even then, I knew no women who were attorneys. So yes, I would say there was absolute dearth of any role models, and certainly I did not know any uh, LGBTQ persons who were attorneys either. 
So it was sort of like a two, bar- two barriers two or obstacles that I had to, yeah, not just overcome, but just imagine for mm-hmm. myself. When yeah. you don't see anyone that looks like you, and this is prevalent and relevant then and it is now, if there's no one that looks like you, then y- you have nothing to compare yourself to or uh, no one to follow, and it can be very challenging. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so how did you end up in Orange County then? Oh, right, in my <laughs> first year of working yeah, as a lawyer. Yeah. Well, I went to uh, undergraduate, I finished my undergraduate at Cal State Northridge, mm-hmm. and then I was in L.A., and I'm originally from Northern California, so uh, one thing sort of led to another. I went to paralegal school, I started uh, working um, as a paralegal, but I was really heavily into my athletic career at that time. Mm-hmm. I, as you talked about before we, I think, went on air, went uh, to the recording, I played rugby um, after college. I played basketball in college on an athletic scholarship and academic scholarships as well. But I started playing rugby, so I was really um, involved in rugby, and my club was mostly, I played for UCLA as a club team, so I didn't have to be enrolled as an undergrad to play. And one thing led to another, and I stayed in L.A., and then I made the U.S. national team, and then uh, I was playing in the World Cup and so forth. And so all my connections were really in L.A. athletically, and, um, and then otherwise I started working in a law firm as a paralegal. Mm-hmm. I started to make those type of connections that are important for networking and for mm-hmm. jobs and things like that. <coughs> and I was going to school at, at Southwestern Law School in L.A., and um, partner or an attorney who'd worked at the firm where I was a paralegal, he had lateraled over to a firm in Orange County, and it was time for summer law clerk applications, and he he said, hey, why don't you apply? And I was like, okay, Uh, and I did, and I got a a summer uh, law clerk job, and then ultimately that firm extended an offer to me. So that's how I ended up in Orange County. (laughs) And let me tell you, at the time, in Orange County, uh, certainly has a reputation for being politically distinct from Northern California, yes. uh, red versus blue, if you look at it that way. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was we called it the orange curtain. People yeah. said, oh my gosh, Tara, you are, you're parachuting behind the orange curtain. <laughs> and I said, yes, I am, like a commando. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, if there was nobody that looked like me that I knew in LA, LA proper, yeah. and that by that time I knew LGBTQ attorneys and such, but there was nobody like me behind the orange curtain that I knew. Yeah, I, I went to law school down there and I had a, I had a tough time. Uh, and it was 2012. Right. So I can only imagine the, the time that you had. I also taught down there and it was really hard for yeah. anybody who's even slightly different, so. Yeah, it takes courage, doesn't it, to be different and then to be different in an environment that at least has a reputation for being hostile to who you are. So you have to have a thick skin and you have to go in with your eyes wide open and then you know I also believe that you there's a lot to be said about pe- meeting people where they are so mm-hmm. I could make presumptions about people that worked or lived there but I could be completely wrong so yeah. they too about me so it's sort of like the gay rights issue like Harvey Milk used to say they can't hate us if they know us yeah so there, there was uh, something to be gained from that for me Absolutely. Did you experience discrimination in your position there, or do you think you were able to kind of build bridges and really open people's eyes? A little of both, uh, to be candid. I think that, um, you know, sometimes people who lack a 
cultural competency or experience that any one of us who is different from the norm. We identify as a woman and we're in a, a male-dominated profession or we're LGBTQ and we live in a straight world, whatever it is. I don't think people are always intentionally seeking to discriminate or make it hard for us. I think they just don't have the cultural competency to understand how it might feel to be that person in that environment. And at the time, for example, uh, when I was a first-year attorney, there was a ballot measure or a proposition on the ballot, and I believe it had to do, it was pre-Prop 8, pre -prop gay eight. marriage, yeah. but there was an issue uh, in the late 90s, and it was uh, something before the California legislature where gay marriage was being considered, or there was a proposition, I, I can't remember what it was. And in the firm that I worked at, I shared a secretary as, as a first-year attorney. I shared a secretary with a few other attorneys. And one time I was going to lunch, and uh, the person who was my secretary at the time, I happened over here as I walked past that person's workplace. They were on the phone calling legislators in Sacramento, and being very vocal in, uh, about gays should not be allowed to marry, and it's an abomination. Ab it was pretty, I walked by that conversation wow. with a partner from the law firm. And uh, we also specialized in employment law. So <laughs> it was kind of ironic. And I sort of looked at the partner and cocked my head to the side like the RCA dog, like, hmm. huh. Yeah. And he sort of looked at me and said, I should probably say something about that. And he kept walking. Yeah. And so. I don't think he was trying to discriminate against me. I don't think he recognized the hostile environment that he was uh, partaking in. Yeah. What that felt like to me, if the person that I gave responsibilities and tasks to that had a job as uh, to work on my cases, that Support that person you. Mm -hmm. was doing that openly, brazenly, using office phones. Where you worked. Right, yeah. right 10 feet from my office. With an earshot. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so I, I have often wondered if that was purposeful that that person wanted me to hear that and they were trying to send me a message or whether that person just felt that was appropriate. Imagine that strange your working relationship with that person. Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I just uh, did my work. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, that's one way I've always felt perhaps an obligation uh, besides that I'm a very driven person and a perfectionist to be the best I could be at things that if I could be the best lawyer, the best first-year associate that they'd had or, or whatnot, then maybe um, that would show this person that I am deserving of respect or maybe that I am deserving of, oh, I don't know, civil rights, yeah. things like that. So that's just part of yeah. my outlook at, at It's at visibility, that age. right? It's, it's showing them that you're there and you're exactly like everybody else except for this one small thing that shouldn't even matter. Right. And uh, that, you know. Not a work topic anyways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what right, thing. right. Judge me by my work yeah. ethic and judge me by my work product and who I am in the world. Am I a good person? Am I fair and kind uh, to the people that I work with and for? Um, and I was a paralegal, as I, as I talked about, so I have a great respect for support staff in mm -hmm. all roles because I was that person for yeah. years. So that's sort of how I chose to respond to that. Well, I, I wanted to thank you. I was telling Ariel before you got in here, um, 
in 2013, I, I got married at the beginning of the year. And then um, when the Supreme Court said that we could all be married in the state of California, I believe I got like a text from somebody that I don't even, I can't even remember who it was. And they were like, you can go to Judge Flanagan's, uh, you know, courtroom and she will marry anybody today. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to thank you. That stuck with me for the last five years. And I just thought it was really, really cool. So oh, that's super nice of you to mention that. Thank yeah. you. That was a great thing, you know, obviously, uh, for when the law changed. And, you know, performing marriage ceremonies is a privilege of the job, but it's not a, a duty and responsibility. Um, and it's something I love doing, but when I first became a judge, um, I made a decision that I would not perform any weddings until I could perform all weddings. Mm -hmm. And so people would ask me and I'd say, I'm, I'm so sorry, and I would explain why and people would understand. And so when the law changed and we finally uh, had marriage equality for all, I was out in full force and um, you know I never charged for weddings. Uh, it, there's laws that address when and if you can, but I don't. And yeah, um, yeah so it was fantastic to, uh, to be able to do that. It must have been such a fun day. It was a weird day, open, right? Open your doors. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was weird. It was very. It was very weird. Intense leading up to the announcement and yeah. so forth. That just coincided with uh, the kickoff of Pride Week. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And uh, yeah, it was it was amazing. And then the city of Oakland had an event also down at Franco Goa Plaza where um, it was like if you showed up and you had your marriage license, we would perform weddings. It was myself then um, Mayor Kwan and Barbara Lee. So oh, we huh. just had lines of people and there was a pergola kind of a tent set up and awesome. we would do them uh, as just people came in. It was super, super exciting. Uh, and there was a reception. The city of Oakland had a cake and it was <laughs> this massive cake. It was just a really, really, really fantastic. That's great. Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't know about all that. But um, thank you again for, sure. for that. It was was life-changing, I think, in a lot of ways for me to know that a judge was just opening up, the, you know, the courtroom and saying, come on down. This You're is welcome. This is yours now. So um, how did you be, how did you get from Orange County, right, to judge? How, yeah. what would that trajectory look like? Well, so when I went to law school, you know, I still had the idea in the back of my mind that um, maybe someday I might be fortunate enough to become a judge and um, I thought w well first of all becoming a judge is like lightning striking you right, right. I mean the odds there's so yeah. many qualified exceptionally bright people and it's so competitive and so uh, the stars really have to line up in so many ways to become a judge whether you're appointed or whether you're elected mm -hmm. so first of all you're, you're working against huge mathematical odds but um, and even more mathematical odds if you're a woman or if you're a, a woman or, or a LGBTQ, LGBTQ person right yeah. if you have that diversity um, but I started to think in law school wh well what do I need to know to be a judge besides you need to be a good lawyer which I, I hoped uh, to be and I tried to be every day uh, but I need to know, I've thought the breadth of things, and I looked around, and I thought, okay, well, I need to know civil litigation. I need to know business litigation, just civil litigation in all its forms. I need to know criminal law, and I need to know family law. Those are the three things that I, I sort of walked away. There's derivatives of each of those mm -hmm. areas, but I thought that's what I need to know. So um, as I was winding my way through law school, I tried to focus on those particular areas and really do well in classes related to those three areas of law. 
and um, and then when I graduated and passed the bar, I tried to attain the experience of that. So I started out, I'd been working as a paralegal and then a law clerk in civil litigation during law school, mm -hmm. so that was four or five years, uh, four years of law school and a year before that. And then I worked in a, a civil litigation firm, so I felt I had a, a, a background in civil litigation. And then I applied to the DA's office in mm -hmm. LA County, and I was hired there, and I got my criminal uh, law experience, and I really, really loved being a, a prosecutor. And then from there, I returned back to Northern California, where I uh, was from originally. My uh, partner at the time got a job at UCSF. Uh, she was a, a physician. And so our family moved back up here. And that's when I started to do family law and domestic violence law. And so that sort of was the, the trifecta that I was working in. I uh, felt I had experience in those three things. And during law school, just to backtrack, when I was a 1L, I went to a uh, bench bar type of event through what was then called Lawyers for Human Rights, which was the LGBT Bar Association mm -hmm. of LA mm -hmm. County. And it was a like fall mixer sort of thing, and it was at a judge's house. And I thought, huh, that's, what judge is that? Judge Stephen Lacks, the first openly gay judge in, in the United States, and mm -hmm. he'd been appointed by Jerry Brown in Governor Brown's first term as, as governor. And so I went up to his beautiful house in the Hollywood Hills, and this is when I met Judge Lacks. He was welcoming people as we came into his house, and the light bulb went on then for me. I was like, okay, here's an openly gay person. He's a judge in California, and it just rekindled that hope and that idea for me. So to answer your question, to come out of Orange County was part of getting into the DA's office to work on my criminal prosecution um, experience and my criminal law experience, and then ultimately family law and domestic violence law, which I really had a passion for, cases involving domestic violence. Is there, now, I know that most people tend to, to steer towards a law that, that means something to them. Is there a reason that domestic violence has been such a, a, you know, something that you take on very seriously and fight against? You know, people ask me that a lot, and I, I suppose on the one hand that there is. You know, I think if you ask people, uh, people have very personal stories about what motivates them or why they mm -hmm. feel uh, certain areas of law are uh, important to them. In my family of origin, I don't know the story that well, but my mother's uh, oldest sister back in the 30s or 40s uh, was a victim of domestic violence and I believe died from it, uh, from uh, some very severe abuse, obviously. That was many, many years ago. It wasn't a story that was told historically a lot in the family, um, and of course, well, well before I ever existed, but I, I always sort of sensed or knew there was uh, something <coughs> wrong about Injustice. relationship abuse in, yeah. in our family. And then when I was a, uh, a young child, I had a family member who was a victim of domestic violence. And again, I don't remember there being a lot of talking about it, but that, that's domestic violence, right? But I remember going in the middle of the night with my mom um, with all the kids in the car because my mom had to go help this family member who had been abused. And I remember going at 2, 3 in the morning and seeing the aftermath and, um, you know, being scared. And, and so I think in some way that probably saturated and stuck in with me that that is very unjust and very mm -hmm. unfair when people suffer domestic violence. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but as I was a prosecutor, I don't think I was thinking about it that much. I just know I had a passion for holding people 
accountable for their behaviors. And I, I really understood the ripple effect of domestic violence uh, such that, look, it's not about getting a conviction, it's, it's about getting somebody help. And if yeah. somebody is abusing or allegedly abusing, the best thing that could happen for their loved ones is that the violence stops and that they get help. But I wasn't interested, for example, as a prosecutor, I wasn't interested in getting a conviction and putting someone away for 60 days or six months or whatnot because I understood that that abusive person may very well be the breadwinner for that family, and that family is going to fall on extraordinarily hard times. They're going to lose their apartment. They are not going to be able to feed themselves. If they have kids, the kids are going to be more likely, while a parent is incarcerated, to get drawn into other behaviors, mm -hmm. gang activity, be welcomed into another family. So I, when I was a DA, I had all these notebooks that I would carry. They were like social worker notebooks, and the other young DAs used to make fun of me, <laughs> but I would carry these notebooks. I had, I knew all the resources in LA County. I knew where were shelters, where were programs, where was this, where was that, oh. and I wa would want to get the complaining witness, survivor people connected with everything they could, and then also the alleged abuser, defendant person, get them connected. And it, it really uh, was important to me to try and s hold people accountable, but stop the violence and get people help. So it's just something I really cared about, and I still do. Um, and so it's just I had a passion for those cases um, because I think I saw beyond, uh, you know, what a lot of people as young DAs are trained just to, you know, go, to get the conviction and move leader. on. And yeah. but, I, but you know, and the other DAs would laugh at me and they'd say, "Oh, just get the conviction, blah blah blah." And I'd say, "You know, you do it your way, mm -hmm. and I'll do it my way. Yeah, uh, as long as I'm." meeting my obligations as a prosecutor, I'm very comfortable with how I address these cases. And in fact, I, uh, as a first-year attorney in the DA's office in LA County, won an award as an outstanding domestic violence prosecutor, mm. which was quite an honor. And so I was, you know, there's 1,100 attorneys in that office, and wow. I've been there a year, and that meant a great deal to me. Yeah. I think it's so wonderful that, that you, and hopefully others in the office, but had that holistic approach to domestic violence. Um, I do a lot of domestic violence work and I just agree so wholeheartedly with everything that you just said because it's a systemic problem. It's not, you can't just incarcerate someone. You can't just put an RO in place and say everything's fixed now. Sure. Because you have the breadwinner problem. You have the the interpersonal relationship problem that these people may still love each other in whatever weird way they process love. It's gonna. It, they have to learn how to heal themselves. And if someone, a judge or a court, just tells them to stay away from each other, it's not going to be long lasting. Absolutely. And it'll just, the cycle of violence continues. You have the children that grow up and treat their partners the same way. Someone has to come in and heal the families. And so I think that's absolutely fantastic that you took that approach. Yeah, thank you. And it takes longer and people may not understand it, but it's so important. Yeah, you really have to understand the, you know, the uh, cycles of violence. And mm -hmm. it's the one type of, uh, criminal conduct, alleged criminal conduct, where the victim usually loves the perpetrator. It doesn't happen in a, uh, often in a robbery or a carjacking right. or uh, even a sexual assault or financial crimes. This is unique, and so you really have to understand they don't want the person to get in trouble. They just want the violence and the harm to stop. Well, I'm sure a lot of times you heard, you know, just fix him. And you know, yeah. it could be her too. But fix the abuser. Yeah. Get the abuser help. The person, yeah. the victim, may not even be concerned about him or herself. It's right. help the kids, help the abuser. That's right. Let's fix this. That's right. And that's just so important to do. And especially, you know, as an LGBTQ person, 
I've seen my share of domestic violence in the community, and yeah. it's one thing that, um, as I was an attorney and I worked more and more in domestic violence, I developed something of an expertise in LGBTQ mm -hmm. domestic violence because people who so identified would seek help through me, or people who were LGBTQ and I represented were f so afraid, so afraid, not just of their abuser, they were terrified of court, and I'd say, don't worry, I, these judges know me. You, mm -hmm. you know, don't worry about getting discriminated against. It's not going to happen. But trust me, it won't happen in Alameda County. Yeah. And um, and so that sort of brought my passion for domestic violence and my understanding to a whole new level. I did a lot of trainings uh, nationwide with law enforcement in the medical uh, institutions mm -hmm. about LGBTQ domestic violence because the dynamics are different. What yeah. sort of unique ways. dynamics do you see with LGBT? <clears throat> well, you see a lot more black male type of abuse, right? Like mm. outing people. Mm -hmm. You see a lot more hostility uh, from law enforcement of accepting, I wouldn't say it's that way now, but 20 years ago, 15 mm -hmm. years ago, accepting, okay, I'm going to look at both of you, you're two women, I'm going to assume you're the perpetrator because yeah. you're bigger than this person. And, mm. um, or you're more masculine, or you're exactly so assigning how, gender roles, exactly gender roles, and things like that. So, um, and then people not being out. I mean, they're terrified of being outed, so they're not going to seek help. Yeah. Or people who do get help, they do report the uh, offenses and go to shelters or whatever, being discriminated against by the service providers. Yeah. Doing a phone intake. So, what's his name? Who's he? What's his name? The abuser. He who. I mean, it's just like that skit, right. you know, who's on third. Yeah. <laughs> and so these kind of things, these barriers that are built in make it extraordinarily hard for people who um, identify LGBTQI getting help. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, did you have a mentor that, that got you through this, that, that, that you looked at and said, I can, I can do that because my mentor... Especially going solo and yeah. taking on kind of all these heavy cases. Plus you had more than a few hurdles to, to overcome. For overall, yes, I've had many mentors and people that I look up to along the way and people that I could reach out to and, and ask for help. I think my first and, and truest mentor was when I was a paralegal and I was hired in a big law firm um, in Southern California called Kotkin and Collins, and they did uh, a lot of civil litigation and um, municipality defense, like law enforcement, uh, civil rights actions. They defended law enforcement, mm. um, LA sheriffs, and such for such cases. But the the name partner Ray Kotkin uh, hired me, and I started working for him. Sort of became his right hand person as time progressed, and he just was um, it was civil litigation. Uh, but I learned a lot about how to be a lawyer and how to carry yourself in the law. And he was such a gentleman. Um, and even when, you know, sometimes in, in law, some attorneys are not gentle persons. They <laughs> are overly aggressive or rude or they think that makes them a better lawyer. I, I don't know. I've seen it as a lawyer and I've certainly seen it as a judge. But my first role model was this, um, you know, older, white, straight, Jewish fella who owned his own law firm, but he uh, really modeled for me how to be a good lawyer and how to keep things in perspective. And, and so, um, actually, he was one of the people, when I had worked there for a while as a paralegal, he would say, he said, why don't you go to law school? 
And I was like, yeah, I'm kind of thinking about it. He goes, well, get, you know, start working on your applications. So that was the first person, and I still uh, think of him often. He, he died a few years ago, sadly and tragically, and so I miss, um, I miss that he's no longer here for me to call and ask things uh, of. And then um, some of the uh, young women attorneys, when I was the first-year attorney uh, in the law firm I worked at, they were fantastic help to me. They'd say, look, you can come in here anytime and uh, talk or cry. We used <laughs> to say, have this saying, do you remember that movie, of, uh, A League of Their Own, mm -hmm. where yeah. Tom Hanks said, mm -hmm. there's no crying in baseball. Yeah. Well, <laughs> something had happened at the law firm, and uh, I said, there's no crying in law to, to a couple yeah. of these like, fifth-year women mm -hmm. associates. And they go, oh, yeah, there's crying in law. <laughs> yeah. you, you can come into our office and cry anytime. You know, because it's stressful, yeah. and uh, things happen, and uh, so th those women in particular were very helpful to me. And then, um, as a young judge, I have mentors and people uh, that I call mentor judges, um, and uh, you know, Brenda Harbin Forte of the Alameda County Superior Court. She is just uh, she walks on water to me. I really admire who she is, and. Uh, what she's done and all of her work on diversity and furthering uh, diversity in the profession of law. Um, a lot of my colleagues on California Women Lawyers, and we served on the board together. Nancy O'Malley uh, yeah. and I were both on the board together. Now Nancy, the DA here in this county, and uh, myself, a judge. So um, I still need mentors, and I still still have them. And um, how how have you carried that on with your mentorship to to people who are coming up after you? So that's something I feel really strongly about, that I have a, a duty and an obligation to uh, reach behind, extend my arm, and help people up in, in any and all ways. And when people uh, meet me um, and I meet them, I, I'll often say, here's my card. If there's anything I can do to help you, you know, within the confines of my job, of course, yeah. I'll be glad to. And I try to have as many... Um, interns, externs, law clerks, even if it's just for a few weeks here and there to, to help people out, to give them some experience or to uh, show them a possibility. This summer I had a, a young woman, um, a high school student, come serve as an intern for like July, and she was through, uh, she'd come through an organization that I'd met while I was running for re-election, APAPA, Asian Pacific Americans, I forget the rest of the acronym. Anyways, so she, I, said, sure, I'll take her on, and she came in, and it was her, you know, I read her resume, and then I hired her, and she came in, and I said, she's sitting across from my desk, and I said, and how old are you? And she said, um, I'm 15 today. Oh. And she was so put together, you would have no idea, like, you would have thought she was maybe going to be a senior. She was going into her sophomore year. Wow. And, you know, she could work with me. I could supervise her. We went through all the, you know, procedures and whatnot. But she served as a clerk, and she was fantastic. I taught her how to, to write IRAC-style memos. Oh, wow. I was uh, asked to do a wedding in Rhode Island this past summer, so I wasn't sure of the legality. Some places have reciprocity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Most don't. So I was like, oh. <laughs> I'll have her research it. So she researched, she was calling the clerks in Rhode Island, That's and so cool. it was fantastic. So here's a young woman, you know, who has no lawyers in her family. Her family's um, immigrants from China. So she then gets to come work in the court, which I think wow. has some resume value, yeah. but also to see, you know, uh, a place where she might fit in if that's what she wants to do later. Uh, same thing right now. I have a post bar um, 
law clerk working with me, graduated from USF, awaiting bar results, doesn't have a legal job right now, uh, identifies LGBTQI, that person's working as my law clerk right now um, and getting some good experience and helping me out quite a bit. And throughout my career as a lawyer and as a judge, I, I constantly have people coming to work for me and with me, and I just think it's something that I have to do. I have to help young women or young people, whoever, not just women, not just LBGQ persons, but whoever, because people help me. And it, mm -hmm. I think it's a very competitive field, uh, law, as you guys know, and I think that um, people need the opportunity to get their foot in the door, but most importantly, they need to see someone who either looks like them or is different like them, perhaps, mm -hmm. and see yeah. that uh, they can succeed. I just spoke a few weeks ago at San Francisco State Paralegal Program. I went in there, it's a night school program. I went down to their, uh, one, their professor asked me to come talk, and I went and talked to them. And just to say, I'm, I, I'm no different than you. Mm -hmm. I, I was you 20 years ago. I yeah. was sitting in that chair. And I think that's a really um, important function of, of my job. Yeah. And you never really know what impact you're going to have on those people. I mean, 20 years from now, you could be to that 15-year-old girl what your judge you were delivering papers to yeah. was to you. That's the parallel I saw, too. I'm yeah. like, you're, you I, have become that role. Absolutely. Or Judge Lax. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I'm still in touch with, with Judge Lax. We're both members of the International Association of LGBTQ Judges. In fact, he was one of the founders. But I just saw him in New York at our annual conference. And I, I tell him all the time, it's because of you judge that I'm where I am and it is because I saw that it was possible if I hadn't met him I don't know I might have just given up a little bit on mm -hmm. that dream yeah he was a trailblazer and you saw the path yeah that there was a path for sure all that representation yeah. having representation somewhere that you can see it and picture yourself there it's so important absolutely absolutely yeah. and Alameda County is very good in diversity on the bench but also uh, we were looking at statistics before you got in here. Also, are limited in, in females on the bench. You guys I are think a little, we're at about thirty-three percent. Guys right are a little now. low. I think that's actually, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's strange because you're very progressive in a lot of ways in this county, but also, you know, we're lacking on on women on the bench. So, yeah, in theory, you would think, or uh, I, I think, an aspiration is that the demographic of the jurisdiction right. should, no, should be reflected. reflected. Yeah. On, on the bench. So we've always been, since I've been a judge, lingering around the 33% number. And mm -hmm. I, I would s guess that Alameda County demographics, women are closer up to 50%. Mm -hmm. Probably, so, yeah. And we have a very, you know, uh, progressive governor right now. He's made great diversity appointments. And um, now that he's winding down, I certainly have s the same and high expectations of the new incoming governor that he'll uh, recognize uh, the importance of diversity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So one thing we like to ask our guests is about kind of a life motto. If there's a quote that you've modeled your life on or mantra. an affirmation, a mantra, anything like that, you know, what got you through those hard days uh, in law school on, as a clerk on yesterday. the bench? Yesterday. Yesterday, <laughs> yeah. What do you tell yourself and what do you remind yourself? Uh, that's a good, that's a really great question. There's different, you know, uh, when I think about a question like that, I think about different phases of my life, right? Mm -hmm. There was me as a, a student, there was me as an international athlete, there's me as a lawyer, there's me as a judge, but there's certain um, common ground in all of those. And I would say for myself, um, there's a couple things I think of. 
And one is, and I say this when I talk with young people often, I say, how you do anything is how you do everything. And so I'm a very disciplined, uh, driven person in, in the things that I pursue. And I'm mindful of that. You don't cut corners. Like if I was in 13 years old and told to run laps around the football field, I didn't cut at the angle. Mm-hmm. I would do a right angle hard turn if I had to, but I did it. And, and I think the same is true in, in uh, law. You don't cut corners in being a judge. You read everything, you don't cut corners. And so that's something that I remind myself of and that I carry with me. Um, another thing, I just read this uh, the other day. So it's not brand new to me, but the concept is. And somebody's, somebody had uh, put up on a website I was looking at um, related to bicycling. And it was sort of like lessons our mothers taught us. And somebody who worked at the bicycling company or different people shared different tidbits. Mm-hmm. And one I read, and I really liked it, is their mothers taught, ta- taught them, don't forget to sing in the lifeboats. <laughs> if it's all going to crap, yeah. you may as well make the best of right. it. And well, I like that. I, I think that yeah. is something, I, I might not have phrased it that way uh, throughout my life, but that's something that um, I tried to adhere to, you know, and uh, it's going to help I, me get through some of the days when we find, hear new things about coming out of the political climate all the I time. Know. That will help me get through. It might be through. very oh, relevant. I wish I'd stage. known that in 2016. I would have uh, <laughs> sung a little bit more sung harder. In, in my, in my life. Louder. <laughs> sung louder. Yeah. And then, um, I guess, lastly, you know, be a kind person, you know, and uh, it can be hard and it can be hard for all of us. I think our society uh, is very uncivil right now Mm -hmm. and the discourse uh, that we're seeing and hearing politically and otherwise is Mm -hmm. just so nasty and um, that's not necessary. We can uh, we can disagree respectfully. We could be different and still respect each other's differences. And, yeah. and so I, I just try to remember, you know, be kind. And if you're not sure what that is, then uh, perhaps one uh, way to think of it is think of your mother standing right behind you. Is she going to be happy with what you just said or what you just did? You know, yeah. and my mother passed away a few years ago, and um, she was very uh, big on manners. Mm-hmm and good etiquette and good behavior. And so um, I like to think that she's looking over my shoulder and I hope that I'm conducting myself in a way that she'd be happy about. Yeah, I think that's so important and so underrated. And I'm sure in your experience as a family law attorney, a family law judge, I do family law. A lot of times I, I tell my clients that, I see the judges say that, look, just have some kindness, have something, or at least, um, don't be so adversarial all the time about everything. Let's try to come to the table and discuss something without calling the other person names. So right. Just something so small. Right. Did you see that a lot when you were on the family law bench that you tell people to be I, nicer? I did. I did. And, you know, sometimes it would be counsel who would be more inflamed than it, as I just observed the litigants. And maybe they were just being the mouthpieces or maybe they were showboating or something like that. But I would see just such hostility. And um, I would have to admonish or just say, counsel, it's, is this your life or is it your clients? Like yeah. dial it down, you know? And I just don't think anybody gains from that. And I see people sort of stoking the, 
the, the flames of hostility. Well, I think council has, we really can set the tone. You know, if we don't get worked up about it, it'll help right. our clients not get worked up about it. But like you said, some some people do like to stoke it, whether it's to bill more or to do whatever it is. Right, right. And there were times, a few times, not often, but I, I would say just on the record, hey, client and client, petitioner, respondent, in my experience, at the end of all this, the only people going to have any money is your attorneys. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, uh, that's not something I, you know, I, I don't want to deprive any attorney of making a good living, and there's nothing wrong with that. But some cases you could see there wasn't going to be anything left. Right. Because it was just fighting over ridiculous things, like spending $10,000 over, you know, an item that was uh, maybe uh, a replacement <laughs> value of $700. Yeah. yeah. Like, come on now. Or, or uh, reminding people, um, you know, this litigation will end, but you're going to still have children in common with this person. Yeah. So imagine, you know, at their wedding in, you know, 15 years or whatnot, you know, do you want to carry this kind of uh, history with you? Yeah. yeah. I know you have to leave because you're very busy, um, but we'd, we'd like to uh, ask you what we usually ask at the end, which is if you could speak directly to every woman in the profession, what would you want to say to them? I know that's a big, tall order, but... I would say be yourself. Be who you are that's good enough. And don't doubt that. Don't let ever, ever let anyone make you feel or think you are less than because of your gender identity. Be yourself. It's good enough. That's a really good message and something that people need to hear a lot. Yeah. Thank you so much. I would personally love to have you back to explore your international um, athletic career yeah. more because that is so interesting to me and we didn't get to talk about it. But Yeah, we can do rugby talk. We can sometime. do rugby talk, yeah, some after hours rugby talk. Well, thank you so much. We've appreciated your time. Yes. Uh, we appreciate everything you have to say and it was fantastic sitting down with you. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. yeah, and everyone out there, go be kind. Yes, be kind. Be kind. Okay.